Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we talk to Dr. Naomi Boyd about veterinary physiotherapy and sports medicine. Dr. Boyd is one of an elite cohort holding the dual qualifications of veterinarian and physiotherapist, having graduated from the University of Sydney in 2011 and 2004, respectively. She has practised in both roles before taking on a role as sports medicine veterinarian and physiotherapist at SASH. Naomi is currently undertaking a residency to become recognised as a veterinary sports medicine and rehabilitation specialist. She lectures on veterinary physiotherapy within Australia and internationally and has been a visiting lecturer to the Yamazaki Kakuen University in Tokyo. She has presented at an international symposium of veterinary rehabilitation in Vienna and was previously the vice chair for the APA Animal Physiotherapy Group. Naomi is also engaged in research and is currently studying gastrocnemius injuries in dogs. Hello, Naomi. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pure Animal Podcast. How are you today? Yeah, I'm well. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me on here. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's so exciting to talk to you. Uh, you're a um, quite a unique uh, vet that we have available to us in Australia in that you're a sports medicine vet and physiotherapist. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about the work that you do um, and about uh, what sports medicine even is and how we can start to lean on what we're seeing happen in the human world of rehabilitation and osteoarthritis treatment and start to extrapolate those findings um, and different treatment options for our pets. So before we get into the sort of main bulk of the discussion today, I'd love to hear a bit about your background, uh, why you actually wanted to become a vet and a physio and how you ended up working for SASH in your current role. Um, so I started off as a physiotherapist and as a physio um, I worked with a lot of sports teams. Um, I worked with some elite footballers out at Sydney Uni and a lot of ballet dancers. And I really enjoyed that part of my work. Uh, but what I really sort of I enjoyed the most was the workup of cases mm. and getting to an answer and the cause. Um, and I wanted to be able to stretch myself a little bit further, which is why I went into veterinary medicine. Uh, and during that time studying, I kept doing physio part-time. Okay. Yeah. And then... Uh, when I graduated, I had full full plans actually to be a mixed practice vet, mm-hmm. um, but along the way, I did some uh, work experience as an animal physio um, and discovered all the ways that I thought we could improve the care that we give dogs and cats and, and other animals. And I was very lucky that when SASH opened up their uh, rehabilitation department, um, they asked me to come on board and um, I've been there ever since. Amazing. So how long is it since you started at SASH? Um, I've been here a bit over four years now. Oh, right. Okay. And so is their sports medicine and rehab centre relatively new then? It's just been around for four years? Having So they've had a, a rehabilitation sort of department here for, for before quite a while before that, but it was more um, working in amongst the other teams with no specific space, whereas at that four-year mark, that's when we have our own area, we have our underwater treadmill, we have our gate analysis room, we have a, a full setup, which is really exciting and it's been really great. 
Amazing. And so at SASH, you do obviously see physiotherapy cases um, for musculoskeletal problems, but there's other areas which you can use physio as a treatment for, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So I think probably most people in the community are familiar with physiotherapy for what they see it for, which is they go in for their sprained ankle or their sore back or things like that. Mm. Um, And what a lot of people don't realize, unless maybe they've had a really unwell family member or the same thing has happened to them, is that there's actually physiotherapy in every public hospital, in every single ward in those public hospitals. And that's because if you go in for a general surgery, things like abdominal surgery, um, if you're in for definitely an anything orthopedic or neurological, um, day one after your admission, you'll be assessed by a physio and set up with a plan to get you moving. Um, and the other area that I think is also maybe a little bit under-recognized is our, our critical care and our intensive care patients, where there we have a physio plays a really, really important role in keeping those people um, moving or, or getting them back to mobility. Um, because the thing is, in public health, you know, where the whole system is set up to try and get people um, out of the hospital as quickly as possible to make it more efficient. And we know that if we keep people moving, um, their outcomes are better, whether it's for uh, general surgeries, whether it's for orthopedic surgeries, or whether it's for really severe illness that ends them up in um, intensive care. And is that, I mean, this is going to sound really silly, but the reason to keep them moving physiologically, is it to do with the flow of blood and the flow of lymph and maintaining muscle strength and keeping joints lubricated, sort of uh, from a sort of pathophysiological point of view, what is yeah. the, what are the benefits of keeping pets and people moving when they're unwell? Yeah, so for all of those things, um, I think that the effect on the heart and the lungs is huge mm. um, and the cardiovascular system. So it has a huge impact on um, blood pressure and keeping that stable. Um, but actually some of the best evidence and the, the you know highest level one evidence that we have for physiotherapy is in cardiac and pulmonary rehabilitation right. um, and preventing things like atelectasis either post-op or um, post-respiratory disease, um, working with patients on ventilators to get them off the ventilator faster, but then also making sure that they don't relapse and have to go back on the ventilator. Yeah. Um, and I think there's just so many widespread effects, you know, as you said, for, for cardiovascular effects, um, for respiratory, all the way through the body, um, and as well as mental health and making people uh, yeah, for sure. feel good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And so uh, all of those touch points that we talked about for people, you're essentially starting to extrapolate um, the sort of data that we have from using those techniques in people for pets in SASH. Is that, is that sort of something that yeah, you're focusing on? absolutely. So I think in some ways um, as vets we can be really good at making sure dogs go outside to toilet. Um, but sometimes um, there can be a tendency to think that maybe more rest is better. Mm. And um, avoiding certain activities or avoiding certain things or overstressing an animal is definitely really important. But almost always making sure there's some mobility in that day is really important yeah. um, for all of those reasons, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, obviously, there's a huge role that physiotherapy plays in the treatment plans of, of lots of different conditions. But what I'd really love to chat with you about is sports medicine. So we know what sports medicine is in terms of um, the human world, but what is sports medicine in the veterinary world? What does it look like? So I guess sports medicine in people was developed as a way to support um, people participating in sports or play, um, and that's for you know humans right from primary school age all the way up to elite athletes, and then you know to masters level athletes who just want to play, do their weekend warrior stuff um, every Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. And I think sometimes when we think about dogs, it's this idea that we only see agility or, or um, police dogs or things like that. But we, if we go back to that idea is that we're supporting people in play, so movement and um, being able to participate freely in the things that you enjoy. What sports medicine is about is keeping dogs mobile and happy enough to do that. Um, and for me, that's really one of the most lovely things. I mean, yeah. that, that feature is just so integral to dogs' quality of life, being able to let them move and do the things they love. Um, and I guess in a practical sense, that means I see dogs for all kinds of lameness, all kinds of pain that affects their movement. Um, any poor or abnormal movement, whether that's cropping up from uh, joints or muscles or tendons, which we maybe don't do such a good a job of picking up muscle tendon injuries uh, mm. yet. Um, and then obviously dogs after surgery or dogs with neurological conditions and things like that. Yeah. Okay. So if you were to see one of these patients, what does a workup look like from your perspective? Um, I, I, I guess it's the same as with any case, it, it can vary a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think uh, one of the, the good challenges, but definitely one of the challenges is you do, I do get a few referrals for cases where there's a few different problems lying over the top. There's yeah. really curly cases where the signs are quite nebulous and vague and yeah. you might end up going, looking for a few different things. Um Generally speaking, uh, we try and localise where, where we think the problem is coming from. So are we dealing with something musculoskeletal or are we doing, dealing with something neurologically or very occasionally is it um, something that's medical like an IMPA or similar. Mm -hmm. And then same as with other, other specialties, we go down that diagnostic path. For me, that more often than not involves um, some kind of imaging, whether that's yep. just brain x-ray or CT or MRI here at SASH. Um, we almost always use the gait analysis yep. mat as well um, and then uh, see where that leads us and go from there. Amazing. And the gait analysis mat is uh, the only way to really objectively assess lameness from a sort of visual perspective, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we have soft plates and we have um, pressure mats. And here at Sash, we have the pressure mat, um, which is really useful because you've got a runway to walk your dog along. Yeah. And talking about, you know, we mentioned those kind of vague nebulous cases where, you know, the dog will be lame briefly, but recurrently when it uh, plays exuberantly, but then walks into the vet high on the and looks fine. <laughs> so frustrating. <Yeah. laughs> those annoying cases, yeah. um, it's great because we can get the dog uh, doing a trot along the mat and you will pick up changes in their stride length and the pressure being put through the limb. Um, and you can see that consistently. And then 
use that not only to make sure that you're on the right track, but also to monitor if they're improving, which is really hard if you, you're not seeing the changes that the owners see in the consult, you know. Yeah, of course. And so for a case like that, that had a really subtle lameness that wasn't sort of visually apparent all the time, but you picked up changes mm-hmm. with the pressure mat gate, then would you would that then direct you to um, image a particular limb starting with x-rays or is that sort of the stage that you use the pressure mat in terms of the workup? Um, I guess when it becomes really useful is when I have this report of lameness. Um, it's not really obvious in the clinic. We make sure that what the owner reports matches up with what's actually happening with the dog because we know that owners aren't always the best um, observers of canine gait. Yeah. Um, and then I do a full orthopedic exam as normal, but we'll really hone in on that leg and I'll yeah. make sure that I'll get into looking at each joint, looking at muscles and tendons really importantly because, again, we sort of kind of can skip over that. And then um, at that point, if I've got a nice feeling of where we're at, x-rays, um, ultrasound for muscles, um, or if I think that there's more than one area, we think of more like a CT. Yeah. And so once you've um, sort of, you've essentially got your information from doing this comprehensive workup, then we're looking at a treatment plan. And obviously in terms of physiotherapy that, that I've always been a part of, the treatment at home is is really the mainstay of the treatment plan because obviously they can't spend hours and hours and hours every single day with you yeah. in the clinic, even though that would be, you know, amazing if that was possible. So how are you empowering your um, your pet parents to really take the lead in their treatment in their home environment to um, maximise the success rate? So I'm really lucky, Sarah. I think I have two things on my side. One, one nice thing about working in sort of sports medicine or physio is that the owners that are coming to you are already motivated. So yeah. I, I generally my, my clients are really lovely and pretty keen to put in some work. Um, the other thing that I have on my side is that dogs get treats for their exercises. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so they actually love it. And I, I've truly, I've had a bunch of dogs over the years who, if owners have had a routine, like they do their physio at three o'clock every afternoon, um, the dog will go to the area where the physio is done and bark until wow. owners will come over. <laughs> because of the so food. There's that kind of intrinsic meditation that maybe I would get at the gym if someone fed me chocolate for every yeah. squat I yeah. did. Yeah, <laughs> totally do that. <laughs> um, and I think the other thing is, like, uh, as a human, your physio is can sometimes be seen as a bit of a chore. Um, definitely some, some of the things I ask owners to do can be seen maybe as a chore, but a lot of it is kind of like the same stuff that they would have done through puppy preschool times. You know, you're yeah. working with your dog a little bit as a team um, and both people, and I think it's quite nice for owners to feel like they're really contributing to their dog's progress. Yes. Um, so I think that helps. Yep. And so in terms of like a typical treatment plan for a uh, musculoskeletal issue, are you asking mm-hmm. them to do a daily physio session at home and then for how many weeks or how long is that is that a forever treatment plan to maintain um, the you know the resolution of the issue or, or what's the sort of typical plan look like yeah so so yeah you're right everyone got to me their sort of homework to be done um, for most for most dogs there's something small to do every single day 
Um, and often I'll ask them to do something a little bit more intensive or a little bit more time um, needed three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of how long that goes on for, it definitely depends on the dog. You know, your sort of standard recovery period to see a lot of changes in your soft tissues and in your joints is about six weeks. Yeah. Um, and I talk to owners about being really diligent for six weeks and then we might change the plan a little bit for the six weeks following that. Yeah. A lot of the things that I see are chronic. So um, in those chronic cases, we'll have a chat about this idea of working through whatever's caused the current exacerbation, whatever's really bothered them that they've come to see me, and then talk about um, not physio every day for the rest of their life, but more like just like for ourselves, you know, we need to make sure that we're active, we're healthy. Maybe we do go to the gym twice a week or we do Pilates twice a week or whatever it is that supports our well-being yeah. and kind to introduce that into their normal routine. So hopefully I never make it too onerous, but we sort of talk about the ways we can make it part of their lifestyle um, so that it's ongoing and manageable. Yeah, for sure. And are you also asking them to modify the exercise that the pet takes at home as well? Yeah, in the early stages, I'd say for 99% of the, the cases I see, we have, I feel like I do a lot of talking. <laughs> we talk a lot about um, how we modify activity without stopping everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so things like jumping, stairs, twisting exercises, are they a real no go from your perspective? For, for most things, um, there can be a little bit of variation. You know, with muscle injuries, we might talk about um, specific movements that we want to avoid, but, you know, we're fine to jump off the couch, but we're not fine to, to run after a ball or something like that. Um, but, gen- like, as a, a general rule, the, it's the hard, fast movements and the quick changes of direction that are problematic. And mm. and I liken it to what we see with, you know, a footy player or a soccer player. You know, yeah. they often cope well with their normal daily activity and even training. It's when they go back to playing a game, not thinking about themselves or any sense of self-preservation and um, throwing themselves into it at high speed. That That's the problem. Yeah, for sure. That makes total sense. And again, something that we can, you know, lean on learnings from from human medicine for our pets, which is just becoming more and more possible these days, um, which is just so fantastic for us to be able to really utilise so many more different treatment options um, that are becoming yeah. more freely freely available. Um, and so if your pet parent goes home with their treatment plan, are you asking them to purchase any specific tools or change anything in their home environment to be able to do these different daily treatments that you're asking of them? Um, I'm a really big believer in making things as accessible as possible. So there's definitely things that you can buy that just makes things, it's simple to do exercises or, or whatever I've asked. Um, but a lot of the time there's things that we can kind of DIY or borrow from normal home environment. Um, that means that anyone can do it. I think the, probably the biggest recommendation in terms of modifying the home environment is making sure animals on uh, non-foot floors. Mm. Um, I have had one owner who recarpeted her, her whole house <laughs> on the basis of that wow. advice, but most <laughs> people pop down some yoga mats or buy their dogs some boots. So, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. so there's easier options. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, so boots is something that you you recommend quite commonly? 
Yeah, boots or um, what works nicely are those uh, soft gel nail caps that you can buy for oh. dogs. And it's kind of like taking the yoga mat and gluing it to their uh, claws. Oh, wow. Um, and so for, yeah, yeah. For, for most dogs, it's really useful. And, you know, we sort of seen uh, these days, most people have floorboards or tiles in their yeah. houses and dogs are slipping and sliding. And this is just much easier than recarpeting or, or putting your commands down everywhere. Yeah. So is that, I, I haven't really seen these. Is, is it something that you apply to the nail and then they stay on until they grow out? Or is it something that the owner puts on each day like a sock? <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. Um, you trim down the nail. Um, they come with some glue, um, and oh, then wow. you glue the caps on, and they kind of just snugly fit over. They're actually, first I think developed uh, to try and stop cats clawing furniture. It's such a bit cruel to use it in cats because they retract their claws. Yeah. Um, but in dogs, we just we just pop it on, we trim off the excess, and then they have some more grip. Oh, that's so amazing. I'd love to see an image of that. <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming people get different um, colours. Or black or yeah. your, your preferences. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure people go mad with sort of painting it with different nail polish yeah. colours and things. <laughs> okay, yeah. so um, but there's no uh, sort of special, you know, bands or balls or anything that we might have for for our, our physio treatments at home that you ask people to have. It's It's really just... Making sure that their their environment is is non slip. Yeah, um, that sometimes does suggest equipment, but if owners can't get it or it's a cost consideration, there's always ways around it. We want yeah, to make it work. Not essential. Yeah. Okay. And so, how often you mentioned that you like to modify the treatment plan, say every six weeks for the first couple of times, and mm. then um, do you often just l- just let cases go uh, once you're happy that they've resolved the issue, um, do they sort of just go off into the ether or do you actually like to see them back periodically, you know, in the long term? Um, it depends on the bit on the case. Yeah, if I have uh, isolated injury, uh, so any kind of muscle injury is probably a really good example where I expect an excellent outcome. I expect it to be a nice, um, defined uh, recovery course. Then I want to send them off into the ether. I don't want to give them this idea that they have to keep seeing me to remain yeah. well. You know, yeah. my job is to enable them to to go be happy and play. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, uh, the things that we see, though, we expect some level of recurrence. Um, you know, we think of dogs that have hip dysplasia yeah. that go on to develop arthritis or go on to have surgeries, perhaps instead. Um, you know, those kind of cases, I'll say to them, truly, you're better to come and see me earlier and let's hold off on surgeries if we can. Let's be really proactive um, rather than waiting till things are a bit desperate and then coming in and then we have to start think about uh, more sort of aggressive interventions. So yeah, case dependent, sure. but be proactive if you're if things aren't going well. And just uh, as a little um, tangent, so for for a dog that is either genetically predisposed to hip dysplasia or unfortunately as a young dog has been diagnosed with hip dysplasia. Um, What is a preventative plan um, in terms of preventing deterioration and um, slowing the progression of osteoarthritis in those joints? What does that look like from a physio and a sports medicine point of view? I think one of the things we have really, really nice data on from people um, is that we know if people have more muscle mass, and if they perform better on tests of strength, 
They're going to develop osteoarthritis from any cause, but hip dysplasia is a good example. Um, later, they'll develop it much later on. It will progress more slowly. Um, and if, it, if there is arthritis already associated with that, it, again, it'll take longer to become more severe. Um, so these are the dogs where we talk about avoiding the hard, fast activities yeah. or if they're young and exuberant, you know, just limiting it or the way that we can do it more swiftly, like uh, playing in water. Yeah. And then they're the owners where I'm like, this is a dog where physio doesn't necessarily, maybe it's not every day, but it's definitely a part of every week if we want to avoid coming back to see me for something more aggressive as an intervention. Keeping muscle mass on them, um, good quality food, regular regular walks and, and normal aerobic exercise as well. Um, mm-hmm. And that will really improve your joint health. Yep. Okay. And what about swimming? Do you, um, cause I know I've, I've heard that, you know, swimming is obviously full of benefits, but also there's no uh, weight bearing through joints. So what are your feelings about swimming as part of a, um, you know, therapeutic exercise plan? Yeah, so if we if we go to the example of, say, a young dog with hip dysplasia who uh, we don't need to think about surgery at the minute, but we want to make sure we never have to if we can, um, I'll talk about exercise and water or hydrotherapy in two ways. One, we use it to let them have as normal a life as possible and as happy a life as possible, and that's playing in water. So particularly, like I'll see eight-month-old dogs, who Labradors, who all they want to do is run around and be noodles. Um, <laughs> to tell people that that dog can't socialize or can't be silly or can't chase a ball, it's really hard. Yeah. So, you know, taking them to a dog beach, chasing a ball in the water, um, socializing around those kind of areas, letting them bound and play in a part where the impact is reduced because the water is really useful. Yeah. And then the second part is using water as therapy. And for that, for those cases, if it's a joint disease as opposed to some others, I really want the dog weight-bearing. I want them pushing yep. off with their paws because I know when the feet are in contact with the ground, that's when the stabilizing muscles and the muscles that are important for gait are being activated. Right. So it's great for aerobic fitness, for fun, but it's not going to get that muscular development, which is what I care about therapeutically. Yeah, okay. That's really interesting. And any other source of exercise that you recommend other than, um, you know, just a, a sort of a good walk on a supportive surface and swimming? Is there anything, I know that you probably see quite a few sort of agility dogs and things, is that something that you recommend or is it too vigorous oh, for yeah. some of them? I guess um, in terms of like if incorporating stuff into a, a daily routine, incorporating going uphills can be useful for yeah. some owners. It's really accessible and has a bit more of that muscle targeting effect compared to just walking on the flat. Yeah. Um, the other thing I recommend, not so much therapeutically, but a way to keep dogs mentally happy and mobile um, is nose work. Um, so okay. instead of agility and fly ball and those kind of high speed, nose work gets them hunting out scents. Um, yeah. It makes them work really hard uh, cognitively. Yeah. Um, they love it. They're moving for it, but it's never particularly speedy. And it's been such a good thing for either those those puppies that we have to limit what they're doing or previously active dogs who are recovering from surgeries or older arthritic dogs who you know may even have been done agility in the past. Really wonderful sport. Yeah, amazing. And is that uh, available to really any breed or is it really just yeah. the sort of hounds <laughs> and the retrievers? I, I guess they have to be sort of scent focused. Um, yeah. But any, any breed that's happy to do some work, which is, you know, the, the ones that will get involved. 
Okay. And how um, how do you recommend people learn about doing that? Do you have a, a program that you recommend or anything online? Um, so generally I send them to a club. Uh, so I often, I'll email them details of a, a woman called Marion Brand who want, runs some nose work workshops um, and is part of a club and I'll often send my clients there or if they're in an area that's where she's not so accessible, you know, I'll get them to do a bit of a Google search because just like those agility clubs, there's there's similar setups for nose work. That sounds amazing. Well, hopefully they can go out and find some truffles and things like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Coming into the season. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, so good. And so um, we've talked about some of the therapies that might be available for pets with osteoarthritis. What are some other new therapies that are on the horizon? Yeah, so that... Arthritis is uh, one of these um, diseases, I think, that can feel really frustrating. Um, I see it all the time, and I think um, all vets see it all the time, right? It's, it's part of our, yeah. our daily life. Um, and we can sort of feel like we don't have a cure. Um, but there is some new things, but there are some new things coming out. So there's some medications uh, that have been approved either in the US or over in the EU that will hopefully be here in Australia in the not-too-distant future. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those is their anti-nerve growth monoclonal antibody factors, wow. which is a very, very long name. <laughs> yes. um, but it's <laughs> essentially a drug um, that impacts on the anti-nerve growth factor and affects the way that it or stops the way that it facilitates local inflammation and stops the sensitization of peripheral nerve endings. Okay. Um, and the studies that have been done are, are quite promising. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something, also, sorry to interrupt, is that something that is uh, already available in people? You know, I, I don't, I think it has been developed, but because there is an antibody-based drug, they had to, they have to specifically develop it for canines and felines. Yeah. Um, and so, but I think it has come from people, I just haven't read that literature. Yeah, okay. Yeah, interesting. Maybe it'll yeah. go the other way, the other direction. Maybe we'll uh, utilise yeah, it in animals first. Yeah, it's a yeah. actually closer to getting it more registered yeah. as well. But again, I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That sounds exciting. Um, and then the other one is uh, Grappy Plant or Gully Plant, which is the brand name, um, which is over in the US. And this is a drug that antagonises the EP4 receptor. So it's the receptor for our postenoids um, that are released through the Cox pathway, and so targeting it from a different way, um, making it hopefully a little bit more specific again, mm-hmm. um, and maybe giving us an option for dogs who can't tolerate non-steroidals. Um, so that we still need more data, I think, on the safety and and long-term effects, but mm-hmm. looking really promising. Okay. And then I think one of the, the talking points, or something that comes up in my day all the time, is CBD. Yes, I was actually just thinking, asking you about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so, until fairly recently, I mean, here at Satch, we haven't really, we have, well, we haven't recommended it, um, just because there's an absolutely um, smorgasbord of products out there that mm. aren't regulated. They're more yeah. supplements than actual drugs. Um, the quality of what is in them is really unknown. The concentration is unknown. The way it's prepared is all mm-hmm. very variable and. At best, we're probably doing nothing with those um, preparations, and at worst, we're maybe doing some harm. Mm. Um, but we have now got the ability to prescribe uh, the human human uh, version as the off-label use. Mm-hmm. And 
running, there's some trial. well, there's three papers out that have been done in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hoping to run a trial here at SASH in the coming months as well. Oh, wow. Um, and I think that could be an exciting alternative. And also, I'm kind of excited just because a lot of owners are already trying to use it, <laughs> um, but using these uh, less than ideal preparations. So to have something um, that's, you know, formulated properly and reliable will be really great. Yeah, absolutely. And so do you have to have a special licence to prescribe the human CBD for off-label use as a vet? No, no, you just have to um, do it as you would for any other off-label drug. I think the discussion that I have with owners is that, again, we this is a drug that's very much in early use. We don't have all the safety data yet um, from the studies that are out there. It does uh, elevate ALP in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so therefore, we want to run blood before we put um, our patients on it. We want to make sure we're running, repeating that fairly regularly. We're not just letting that sort of drift off. Yeah. Um, and monitoring for adverse effects. Yep, of course. So every three to four months, are you running bloods, or every six months? That's what I I say. Every three months earlier, if something comes up. Yeah. Okay. Great. And. In terms of what you're um, seeing, I'm, I'm assuming you've got some patients on it already. So are you seeing good results anecdotally? So we've only just started getting it underway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the trial that we're doing here at SASH is placebo controlled. So um, I, I don't have any really strong, hard feelings towards it yet, yeah, but okay. I'm excited to get get yeah. a bit more idea of how good it is or not. And with CBD, uh, essentially we're trying to control the pain um, due to the osteoarthritis. Is there any mm. evidence to suggest that it can modulate the, the pathology in the joint as well or is it, is it just related to pain perception? All the studies that I've looked at have um, looked at pain mm. and so they it acts centrally. The other kind of cool thing is that there's receptors for um, our cannabidiols in joints so yeah. it potentially has a peripheral effect as well. I don't know anything, I haven't read anything convincing about uh, cartilage health. No, um, me neither. Yeah. So far, yeah. And in terms of cartilage health, are you recommending uh, any other supplements as a preventative um, in at-risk dogs for osteoarthritis or cats? Yeah, so I think um, the most comprehensive evidence we have to date is still for our omega-3s and our fish oil. Yeah. I think there's some... Some uh, nice studies looking at green lip muscle um, and the other supplements uh, that are promising, but I guess they're early. We just like to see more of it confirming the findings we're seeing of Boswellia and curcumin yes, um, have yep. quite promising results in some large effect sizes, which is nice. Yep. And again, they're quite common, commonly reached for in human medicine. So it makes sense that uh, we'll be yeah. able to um, see similar results in certainly in dogs. And I think one of the other things that's sort of come through that we can look at um, human data for is platelet-rich plasma. There's mm. a systematic review that came out only very recently um, looking at it in knee osteoarthritis for people and finding that there was uh, a good amount of evidence to recommend its use. Um, so it's also a promising option. And is that something that's injected into the joint space? Yeah, so with yeah. the platelet-rich plasma or PRP, we, we collect the blood, we um, spin it down to get that platelet-rich um, concentrate. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being that we know platelets are really critical for things like wound healing. So they have mm-hmm. all of these growth factors, all of these 
uh, cytokines that uh, trigger a response to get tissue laid down and organized. Um, and so taking that concentrate of that and then injecting it into the joint to, you know, I explain it to owners as kind of kickstarting that healing process again yeah. and modulating the inflammation, which is what helps with the pain. Yeah, for sure. Because as we know with arthritis, it's a bit of a, an inflammatory cascade um, effect that's going on within the joint. So as, as much as we can sort of put a stop to that or slow that down is only going to slow down the progression of the disease and hopefully reduce yeah. the pain associated. So, um, so any exactly. other therapies that you um, reach for sort of, you know, non-pharmaceutical, non non-supplement, um, are you doing any acupuncture or dry needling or any laser therapy in your practice? Yeah, so so we do laser therapy, um, mm-hmm. and I'm very lucky. Clara, one of our nieces, has, she does dry needling with oh, pain, um, and I think uh, it has really good evidence behind it for managing pain. Mm. I was I was lucky with laser, so there's really only one really good study looking at um, laser and dogs with OA, and. I was talking to one of the people involved in the study at the conference, and they ran it. Um, they ran the study twice because the first time they ran it, um, they didn't see any results, and so then they doubled the dose, and they got oh. really nice results. Oh, and good I think for them. That, yeah, <laughs> and it's one of those stories that you just have to be in the right place at the right time to yeah. know the background. Um, but it's really made me rethink my uh, way of using it day to day and making sure um, that probably we we need to rethink our doses a little bit in our laser therapy. Is there any side effects to using laser therapy? If it's used safely, no, there shouldn't be any side effects. Mm -hmm. Um, If you were to go too crazy with a dose, you know, you can um, cause burns and things like that. I would tell owners that the the laser that we have, if we put a different end on it, we could use it as a surgical laser. Um, Right, yeah, that's probably good. The power is there. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a good way to explain to them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, it sounds like there's there's so many treatment options that we have available for osteoarthritis. Um, in terms of some of the other cases that you're seeing, so particularly around um, other, you know, soft tissue musculoskeletal cases, is it really mm-hmm. the physiotherapy and the hydrotherapy that you're focusing on or are you using um, any of these other uh, dry, dry needling and laser for those as well? I think um, the role of tri-needling is generally to manage the pain as a side effect. The the way I think of it is it's one of my tools that lets a dog feel more comfortable and then we can start to be more active and then we can build on the strength or motor control um, in a way that we couldn't do if the dog was painful and limited by that. Yeah, for sure. That's how I sort of think of those things, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So we, we reduce the pain first so that the dog is more willing and more able to comfortably perform the physio exercises and then build the strength and then hopefully that will enable less uh, need for the pain relief in that sort of cycle. Would that that be the right way of thinking of it? That's how I think about it. Acupuncture gives us that break. It's a a symptom management um, to let us then build resilience in our patient and build them up and then set them free onto the world. Yeah, for sure. And is that how you're thinking of pharmaceutical pain relief as well? Are you trying to just use it in that initial treatment phase um, in a short-term way to then uh, um, enable the physiotherapy to be done more comfortably and then hopefully wean them off? Yeah, 
Yeah, um, I mean, not all cases that is possible, and that I yeah, definitely have a long lot of dogs that need the support of analgesia all the time. Yeah. Um, but again, sort of leaning a little bit into uh, human medicine, mm. we we more and more see that if you're dosing the same dose every day and it's not responsive to what's happening in your day and how you're responding to your activities. Um, we're not getting the best out of our, our pain management. And I'll talk to owners. I spend a lot of time talking about different ways of monitoring your dog and how to yeah, get an okay. idea of, of what is working and is this a bad day or a good day. Um, and then using our pain relief judiciously around that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I'm very pro. I'm very pro having that on hand. And I'm definitely, it's not something I want to hold back on at all. Mm. Um, but if we can time it a little bit better and make sure that our, you know, our short-acting drugs, we're using them for the times when it's needed. We don't necessarily need to give gabapentin overnight all the time or maybe paracetamol overnight when we know it has um, effects that aren't needed when the dogs aren't moving. Yeah, okay. And so um, just before we sort of finish up, because we are getting close to time, I'd really love to hear a little bit more about how you're asking um, your um, pet parents to monitor comfort levels at home. Are, are they filling in a sort of a, um, you know, assessment chart or or how, how are you instructing them to do that? That's really interesting to me. Yeah, so um, I do a couple of things. Um, I use the Canine Brief Pain Inventory, which is just mm-hmm. a 10-question questionnaire, and that's really easy to implement and takes two seconds. And that's what I'll do when they come in for their rejects. Yep. Um, at home, I encourage owners to pay attention to not so much what happens directly after activity, but what they're like first thing in the morning, yeah. um, particularly after new activity. Yeah. Um, and see if they're because that tells me what that tells me is how they recovered. I don't. I'm not too fussed generally, particularly in my chronic cases. If a dog is more sore after a walk or more sore after physio, yeah. as long as we're recovering from it fully. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so it's to, the next morning. Yeah, yeah, and then to make that a little bit more objective, because we can all put an out, you know, rose tinted glasses yeah. or otherwise. Um, I ask owners to video their dog once a week at the same time of day. Mm-hmm. Um, once a week or once a fortnight, um, just so that they have something they can kind of look back and compare to. Um, That's a good idea. And if we do ever have a hiccup, I ask owners to think about what the dog did in the previous 48 hours, which they're pretty good at doing. The other thing is, did anything change globally day to day two weeks earlier? Because we know we see the impact of the accumulation of small activities, like a small increase every day, about two weeks after oh, um, introducing that. Okay. Yeah. I would never have thought that it would take that long. But I guess it's the yeah, accumulative effect. And so you think like puppies um, being introduced into a house and an old dog suddenly being yeah. harassed by a puppy, yep. you, they're fine for the first two to four weeks. And yep. then suddenly the wheels fall off for yeah. no reason that owners can work out that the puppy came a month ago. Um, and yeah, that's, right. that was the cue. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's really interesting and that's really, really helpful and some practical tips there for our for our listeners to take on board, uh, vets and pet parents alike. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's good. Naomi, this has been such an amazing conversation. Before we finish up, is there anything else that you wanted to share with our audience about this topic? Oh, I don't know, Sarah. I think I've talked a lot. Um, I think we've covered guess- a lot of different things. It's been great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess if I had to say one thing, I think um, 
sometimes physio is seen as like the icing on the cake, you know, it's for the extra yeah. dedicated owners or the people that have more time or maybe um, more financial ability. Yeah. And I would really encourage everyone to reframe that entirely. Physio is what will keep you out of the vet clinic. It's what will save you the $5,000 yeah. surgery. It will stop yeah. you having to see um, or have more expensive things done or more time-consuming things done. And thinking about all this uh, mobility and, and um, general uh, wellness in movement um, early on is so great for prevention and um, it should be part of every patient. <laughs> My yeah, no, I love that and I completely agree. And for the welfare of the animal as well, you know, all of these other things that they may um, reach in terms of surgery and other more invasive treatments, um, you know, yeah. they're not something that we would ever wish upon anyone. So if we can utilise these really nice uh, sounding different therapies that are available as a preventative, yeah. then we're, we're looking after their, their mental and their physical well-being. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that. That's a really nice way to finish our chat today. <laughs> Thank you so much, Naomi. It's been it's been wonderful chatting to you. We'll definitely have to have you back one day. I'm really interested to hear the results of the CBD trial that you've got um, ongoing at the moment. So maybe we can have you back to chat about those findings when they are available. That would be fantastic. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, really Naomi. Have a great day. This was the Pure Animal Podcast, and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you would like to share this episode with a friend, please feel free to go onto iTunes and give us a rating and review.